Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. All right, so today we're going to talk about antipsychotic drugs. Um, these are called antipsychotic drugs, well, for a good reason. They control, that diminishes, I guess one way to put it, controls maybe a little bit more optimistic. Uh, they control, let's not, I'll say that though, the symptoms of schizophrenia. They are used for other things as well, um, and we'll talk somewhat about that, but they're used for schizophrenia. Now, schizophrenia uh, is, how many people here have not taken intro psych at a cure? Because I know some of the bio students, for, for example, haven't. Fair enough. And even those of you that have only taken intro psych, you may not have enough background on this. First of all, schizophrenia is not multiple personality disorder. Multiple personality disorder may not even exist. Uh, it's controversial. The idea that you have more than one personality. On the other hand, schizophrenia is real thin. Schizophrenia, from the Greek, split mind. Um, it's a, what's called a thought, it's, it's a, it's got a whole bunch of things in it. And it's, I'm just going to say this, this isn't meant to be callous. When you think of crazy, that's schizophrenia. Okay? So there are two kinds of symptoms. There are negative symptoms, and that's typically, what a negative symptom is, means you have less of something than the normal person does. So catatonia, uh, it's being catatonic, right? So that's sort of like rocking back and forth, sitting in a corner, that kind of thing. That's a possible symptom. General social withdrawal is a negative symptom. Less social interaction. Okay, so those are negative symptoms. Those are you have less of something than people normally have. Okay? Then there are positive symptoms. Positive symptoms are not good these are having extra things that people don't normally have. And sometimes we may even have some of these things, but we know that they're silly and we let them go. Things like delusions of grandeur. Sometimes we have ideas that we're more important than we actually are. But we don't believe them. Sometimes you might sit there and pretend in your mind have a little daydream that you're Captain Apollo flying a viper against the Cylons. Maybe that's just me. I've been watching a lot of Battlestar Galactica lately. But I don't actually <coughs> believe that Commander Adam is my father, and I'm trying to find the Cylons. Lead us to Earth. On the other hand, people with schizophrenia actually believe these things. They believe them to be true. They have, they are, they're called, again, delusions of grandeur. Almost always the delusions are of grandeur. They're not of, oh, I just think I'm a different guy. You know? My name's not really Dave, it's Steve. And I work at Walmart. That's not the kind of delusion people have. The delusion people have is, I'm God. I'm Jesus Christ, I'm Muhammad, or maybe... I've been talking to them. And they're talking to me. I'm Napoleon. I'm Joan of Arc. Amen. What often goes together with this are hallucinations. These hallucinations are, off, are almost always auditory. 
they are very rarely visual. You hardly ever hear of schizophrenics that have visual hallucinations that see things. They hear things, though. They typically hear voices. And the voices that they're going to hear are often God talking to them. Okay? And it is real. If, you've ever, if you know anybody with schizophrenia or you've talked to anybody with schizophrenia and then they're on their medication, they can tell you that those voices are there. And it's not like the little monologue in your head you know how you have like a running, almost a narration of your life going on sometimes? Like you're walking around in the morning going, okay, now i got to find my keys, now i got to get my wallet, my stuff together. You're not saying, you actually hear your own voice. But it's your voice. You don't hear, if I don't find my keys, the evil ones will get me. Okay. So, you hear voices typically. They're voices that may tell you what to do. They may tell you that there's a conspiracy out to get you. Goes together with the paranoia. Now, again, sometimes we all have these times when we think there's a plot almost, but usually we reject the notion. <coughs> That's silly. Stop being so silly. You say to yourself, these people actually believe. And the most common kind of schizophrenia is paranoid schizophrenia. These people actually believe that there is a plot to get them. It often goes together with the delusions and the hallucinations because if you're so special, they are to get you. They are trying to stop you, whoever they may be. You may hear voices of what you think are the voices of other people. You may claim to hear other people's thoughts. Okay. What goes along with this then is people end up uh, having what's called word salads, so they end up speaking strangely. Uh, they end up talking to themselves, talking to the voices. Okay. Uh, the word salad thing is like they'll just start saying things that are neologisms, things that aren't really words. So again, if you've ever seen, especially in bigger cities, uh, this is prevalent among the homeless population. A lot of people are homeless because of this. Um, it's hard to hold down a job when you don't have schizophrenia under control. Right? So it's, you, you, you'll be hearing... You, you see people going, oh, no, 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 no. that kind of thing. That person probably has paranoid schizophrenia. Right? So you've got to remember that person, while they may, and oftentimes, <coughs> it's not officially a symptom, oftentimes people don't bathe. Uh, not just homeless people, too, people with schizophrenia. They, but an early sign is people that don't clean themselves up very much. And that probably goes in with some delusions and paranoia, you know. The water is full of fluoride. Fluoride was put there by the communists and the Jews. Let's throw the Jews in. Well, there's always paranoid people, but conspiracies there. And the people behind 9-11 in Disney. So this is very disturbing behavior if you've never seen it. Psychology often gets a rap when, when, when one of the definitions that's used of disorder is that it's when people, their behavior is 
maladaptive and disturbing to others. And people say, disturbing to others. Well, that's not fair. What if, well, just because others don't like it. If you've ever seen this kind of thing, it is disturbing. And it is disturbing on a level that is um, something you've probably never experienced before. It's an entirely different kind of situation. When I was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Western Ontario, uh, for three years, uh, I was uh, basically helping to run a lab. Uh, and we, when we'd look for new graduate students and postdocs and stuff, I, I was, it was me and the guy whose lab it was that would sit down and go over the files and say, well, let's take this person, oh, this person looks good. And a person from the former Soviet Union, which we today now call Russia, but then it was called the former Soviet Union because, of course, it used to just be the Soviet Union. This is 1993, 94. And he comes, <laughs> we, we get this, you know, this guy wants to do a postdoc. He is, uh, you know, I was, I was like 27 or 26 or whatever. And we're looking at this thing, that's 27, and we're looking at his file, and he's older than me, he was like 40, but it's like, you know, he's been in Russia. He's trying to fit in with the West. His training's all in Russia. And, oh, well, that'll be very interesting because let's see if we can help this guy out. So he applies. We find uh, my supervisor, uh, his lab was running, Bill Roberts, got money for him and to pay up a salary. So we bring him over and we're doing our thing to spread democracy to the former, for what used to be the Iron Curtain. You know, we're helping people. Guy shows up. We'll call him, uh, i to keep his name. Let's call him Sergey. That wasn't his name. The Russian name, but we're going to call him Sergei. wasn't his name. So Sergei shows up, and he's an okay guy at first. He's a little quiet, but he didn't speak a whole lot of English. He had actually just moved to Israel. He was a Russian Jew. So we think, yeah, he seems okay. He's kind of quiet. And he starts his experiment, which wasn't a bad idea. It wasn't good either, but it was like, oh, the guy's just starting out. He's, most of his training in graduate school was in Marxism-Leninism rather than experimental psychology, which it should have been. So we're, you know, teaching him the ropes, showing him how it works over here. It's all very exciting. We're having a good time. In fact, it was during the 19... Uh, let's see. It was a couple years after the 91 Canada Cup. Yes, it was 93. I remember him and I talking about hockey once. And he was talking about the 1972 series and how he was cheering, of course, for the Soviets. So it was an interesting... He was a, he was a hockey fan. He was quiet. Attributed that to his language, or lack of English. He didn't clean up a lot, wore the same jeans every day in the same sweater, and we attributed that to it's a cultural difference. He comes from a place that doesn't have a whole lot of money. People probably did that there. He really, uh, we should have noticed this, like I said, because of him not cleaning up. Because it got to a point where he, when he was on the eighth floor of the social science building at Western, you could, you could tell because it smelled like him. He also was, well, he showed up in, in, a, in a person's lab, and I'm going to say who, sitting, in, he, went, he was working late one night, and a young graduate student, first year, let's call her, let's call her Brenda. That wasn't her name either. And they went to go get some meat together. There's the only people there. Let's go get some to eat. That's fine. He now thinks it's his girlfriend. She's his girlfriend. So he, she comes into the lab 
one morning, and he's sitting in her office like that. By him. He's sitting there, looking at her. She's a little freaked. She comes out. She reports it to the person whose lab was. The guy leaves. Again, we've attributed this to the, it's mixed signals. Maybe if to him, she wasn't giving off anything, but he took it the wrong way. And maybe in Russia, when you go for one meal at a cafeteria, that means you're going out together. So we're trying to give the guy a break, right? Um, everybody was avoiding him because he smelled so bad. Seriously. And he was creepy. It was just generally really odd to be around. Uh, and us in our lab, we were trying to be nice to the guy, but it was like, he smelled so bad. So he comes down to my office, which wasn't in the secure area, but he comes down to my office and he knocks on the door. And I quickly uh, turned my computer from playing Civilization to actually looking like it's work, because I think maybe it's somebody that's important. And it's, it's, the, it's, it's this guy, uh, I almost said his name, it's Sergey. And he says, uh, David, we must talk. I said, and I thought to myself, oh, now I've got to have to talk with him where I explain showers and deodorant. And I sweat a lot, so actually I have deodorant in, in my office because I just sweat a lot. Something you didn't want to know. So I literally, he says, we must talk. I said, yeah. He goes, we have a problem. I said, yeah, we do. And I'm literally, because I think he's going to ask why no one wants to talk to him. So I go to open up my drawer that has the deodorant, and I'm going to give it to him. He said, you broke me with, what did I call her? Brenda. I said, I don't know who that is. You know that. I heard you thinking about through the walls. And I thought to myself, did I just do that? And again... You think to yourself, he doesn't speak English very well. He means he heard me talking about it in another room. I said, I think I know who you're talking about, but I don't know her in the least. We must have talked. You, me, and Brenda. I said, okay, I'll go talk to her. So I saw her in the hall, and I said, I don't take this the wrong way, but do we know each other at all? She, she said, I know what this is about, and no. I said, thanks, that's all I need to know. So he comes to me in the lab, and I'm holding a pigeon. I'm putting him in a skin box. I'm running a lab coat, holding a pigeon. There's literally pigeon shit on me. He says, when are we having a meeting? I said, we're not having a meeting, dude. She's not your girlfriend. He looks and he goes, <laughs> you are part of it too. And that's when I thought to myself, oh shit, he's schizophrenic. That's when it occurred to me. I put the bird in the box. Um, I, I, I ran away bravely. <laughs> and I went down to uh, my office and I, I sent him, actually my computer, the computer lab, because back then our offices didn't have internet in them, uh, went to the computer lab and I sent an email to my friend Mark, who's a graduate student in engineering, <laughs> And I said, you want to go for a beer now? And he said, it's 11.30 in the morning. And I said, I've had a very strange day. So I got the bird out. And the, beers. Uh, the guy's lab was, was out of town. It was at a conference. So he comes back. Um, so he's now thinking there's a conspiracy. He can hear thoughts. He has delusions that... An attractive young woman 
finds him remotely attractive at all. He then explains later to my colleague Bill that because he's an immigrant, he knows a chip was implanted in him. It's a very common delusion to chip. So people could see through his clothes. And I mean, we all kind of joked, I wouldn't want to go, you know. Maybe if he had a shower. He then showed up in Bill's backyard. Finally, we told him, um, well, finally, we actually called an ambulance. And they took him over to the psych ward at University Hospital. And we were, we then looked to, to get him back home because he was sick. Um, so we found out his mother's name um, in, 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 in Israel at that point. But we called her, and she didn't speak any English. Um, she only spoke Russian, but we actually found a person, Western's a big school, we found a prof that could speak Russian. Turned out it was my old history prof. And uh, he gets on the phone, uh, constantly looking. By the way, this prof, this history prof, looked just like Marco Ramius in Hunt for Red October. You know, just like Sean Connery. Like the same, that, that Russian hair, it was very cool. Anyway, he looks up and he, said, he gets off the phone and he looks at his, just same problem, I think. <laughs> Whoa, dude, so it runs in her family. And his family. Um, he was eventually taken on a plane and put back uh, under some of these medications and, and taken to, to Israel to live with his mom. And apparently Bill to this day still gets the odd uh, letter or email asking, you know, when their paper's coming in. And it's like, <sighs> So you can see from that story, and I have not embellished it in the least, the only thing I've done is changed a couple of names. That that is disturbing to others, and this guy was sick, like literally sick. There was something wrong with him. I, the nice thing is, we actually know exactly what it is. He was diagnosed, by the way, by psychiatrist at the University Hospital as a classic case of paranoid schizophrenia. Okay. Is there any questions about that? I hope that little anecdote helps you understand the kind of behavior we're dealing with here. And you may have seen, like I said, you may have relatives or friends that have had these kind of things. By the way, there is a thing called medical students' disease where medical students think they have everything that they ever hear about. You probably don't have this. Right? If you actually think a chip was implanted in you and you really truly believe it, but there's other stuff going on as well and you're likely not showing up to class because you're afraid that we're all part of the conspiracy. If you wear a tinfoil hat, you'll be fine. So don't think you or your friends have this because chances are they don't. Okay? So these drugs control those symptoms. Um, another term for these drugs is called a neuroleptic, which literally means clasping the neuron. The idea here is that there's too much of some neurotransmitter, and these sort of squeeze it so it doesn't come out. And that's where the name comes from. So it's not a bad term. You don't hear it so much anymore. They also used to be called major tranquilizers as compared to benzodiazepines and barbiturates. It's not really an appropriate name, but they are exceedingly tranquilizing drugs. Uh, you take these things, you might sleep 20 hours a day. These are not pleasant drugs to take. The only upside is you don't have the paranoia uh, and all the other stuff going on with hallucinations. But you will sleep a lot. And in fact, people are sometimes given these drugs. Uh, antipsychotics are used uh, with uncontrollable cases of the hiccups. 
One of the reasons is it puts people to sleep for a couple of days. Seriously. Uh, the other reason is that um, they affect the dopamine system, and it looks like the hiccup reflex, which we don't really understand, has something to do with dopamine. So it's not really an appropriate name because they aren't used for that typically, but they do have that effect for sure. The most useful classification is typical versus atypical antipsychotic drugs, okay? Um, here's some trade, well that's, let's see, those are two trade names. No, actually that shouldn't be capitalized. Chlorpromazine, promazine, and haloperidol. This is sold under the name Haldol. That's chlorazine sold under, and I don't know what that's sold under. Um, those, are those are typical antipsychotic drugs or first-generation antipsychotic drugs. The atypical one, the best known, is clozapine. The typical ones pretty much act on the positive symptoms, not the negative symptoms. The atypical ones act on both. You might wonder then why are the typicals ever used anymore. Well, there is one reason, we'll get to it, uh, that's pharmacological. But there's also the idea that a lot of the social withdrawal and the catatonia may in fact simply be because of this, the paranoia and um, the hallucinations. You withdraw because you're afraid that others are reading your thoughts, etc. So <coughs> it may just simply be the case that um, if we can control, and these are much cheaper than these, right? These are newer drugs. You can get generics of these. It's harder to find generics of these. These have only been out for the last 20 years or so. So we got something cheaper. Uh, typically, we have people, not always, but very often, people that are very low socioeconomic status. So they can't afford more expensive drugs, and they don't have a drug plan. You know, poor people on living on the street, there, there isn't a drug plan for those people. Right? Um, historically, a guy named Lavalie, a French uh, uh, psychiatrist, actually tried giving schizophrenics antihistamines. Because he had the idea, and people, the idea was floating around that it's, something, it's too much of some drug, of some neurotransmitter. They knew histamine was a neurotransmitter. He said, well, we know what antihistamines do. Not only do you get a non-stuffy nose and you fall asleep, uh, it also does block histamine. They take down swelling. For, histamine does that. But it's also in the transfer. Let's give them antihistamines. And in fact, it did have some positive effect. It did help some people. Um, when these drugs were developed in the, in the late 50s, uh, psychiatric wings of hospitals started to close. Because it used to be you kept schizophrenics in hospital forever. First of all, schizophrenia doesn't get better. It's not like, oh, I had a little bout of schizophrenia, but I'm better now. I had a touch of schizophrenia over the weekend. doesn't happen, right? What you have with schizophrenia is something that it's almost always a lifelong condition you control with drugs. So people used to be put in psychiatric hospitals, and they'd, just, they'd be there forever uh, with, with ridiculous attempts with things like uh, talking cures to try to help people with schizophrenia. Um, it's kind of hard. To, the talking cure is the idea of, you know, classics of the psychotherapy. It's hard to use psychotherapy on someone that thinks everyone's part of a conspiracy. 
Other things had been tried as well. Electroconvulsive therapy, which doesn't help schizophrenia. You know, oddly enough, does help very severe depression. Um, so suddenly, literally, psychiatric wings of hospitals were closing because all the people were fine. Well, fine-ish. Much better. They could get by. So the way they're administered typically is orally. Uh, you, again, what do you want? You want a long-time course of the drug. So you want to give a pill. Uh, or by depot injection. Uh, this is a newer technique. This is putting a little bladder uh, underneath the skin and injecting it like once a month, and it just goes through uh, diffusion, through osmosis, and into the bloodstream. The only downside I can see to that is someone that actually often, a very common delusion is that I have something implanted underneath my skin. Now they actually do. And if something goes wrong, they're going to rip it out. That's I don't know of any cases like that, but that's a fear that I have. Uh, these drugs cross all the barriers, blood, brain, placental. Uh, they're absorbed very slowly. Happily, they're, 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 this is good. We want something that's going to be absorbed slowly and at a, constant, uh, at a pretty constant, you know, slow rate because we want something that's going to have a therape- long, big therapeutic window. <coughs> and it's completely broken down by metabolism. So once the drug is used up in the brain, it does get broken down. It's not like, say, alcohol where something's excreted, things like that. No, it just gets completely broken down over time. So you can see here, in fact, those are really good qualities for something that's going to be used therapeutically, which these are. These have absolutely no street value. No one's coming up to you on the street corner and trying to sell you crack or closet bean. It just doesn't happen. How do these things work? They block dopamine receptors. Schizophrenia is too much dopamine. Schizophrenia is not that we're just labeling the eccentric man. Labels disable. No. No, these are people with too much freaking dopamine. It's really simple. So what would you do in that case? You would block dopamine receptors. It's really simple. Especially the D2 receptor, there are four kinds of dopamine receptors. The D2 receptor is the key one here, uh, and they target D2 receptors. In fact, there's a direct relationship between D2 binding efficiency and the uh, ED50 of any antipsychotic drug. And in fact, the correlation <coughs> is basically 1.00. And I'll show you a graph of that in a second. I think it's in the book as well. Uh, they also block acetylcholine. Um, Serotonin and histamine. Well, um, serotonin is actually quite similar to dopamine, so that probably shouldn't surprise me. They alter GABA and a number of other peptides. So they, they, they work. The reason they work is because of what they do to dopamine receptors, but they have other effects. <laughs> They block norepinephrine receptors and cause an increased norepinephrine synthesis, so it kind of cancels itself out. So they got that going. Here's the graph. E50 binding. Look at that. You ever seen data that pretty in your life? That's beautiful. I'd love to collect data like that. Everybody go, you made that up. It's a log scale, as you can see. Nonetheless, that's pretty awesome. 
you might wonder, why in the hell would we ever use, like glucopromazine and chlorpromazine, these are very, um, they bind pretty well, but they also need a large dose. These ones here need smaller doses. What, also, what often happens here <coughs> with these drugs, there are so many out there that you want to find the right dose and the right antipsychotic for the individual patient, right? So you'll, you'll, you'll start out usually, I would think, well, typically I think they do start out with a um, not as potent a drug because we'll talk in a second about the side effects. The side effects aren't a lot of fun. And then you move up to a, a stronger, sort of more, sort of, sort of a more, port, more, bleh, more potent drug. I had to reset things there. So the key brain regions where these drugs work are the mesolimbic dopamine system, which will tell you something. They, they block the reward system. This is actually why these drugs are no fun. They actually make... They take away fun. That's the reward system. It runs on dopamine. We're blocking dopamine receptors in the reward system. You will hear schizophrenics say that sometimes they'll go off their meds for a day just so food will taste good. Just so they'll enjoy watching a television show. Just so they can think a little more clearly. And John Nash, the, 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 the uh, Nobel Prize winning mathematician from the movie Beautiful Mind, which of course he's schizophrenic, spoiler alert. Um, he apparently goes off his meds now and then just so he can think straight for a while and have a decent day. Because you can hold down a job, a lot of schizophrenics hold down, well, clearly he held down a job, uh, can hold, hold down a job and everything and, and be, you know, positive contributions to society, the whole thing. But if food doesn't taste good and you have no sex drive and nothing gives you any joy... And you know what's doing it. You know it's the pills. <coughs> right? Sometimes people are going to go off it. And that's an issue, right? I mean, one of the key things that actually happens with people when once they're on the drugs, they've been diagnosed, they get on the drugs, is that sort of group therapy sessions, and one of them is, here's why you have to stay on the drugs. Right? So there's the reward system. It's targeted here. This has always led to my own pet theory of schizophrenia, which I've heard other people say, but I haven't read a lot about it. Um, the idea that this is reward. You're more likely to do things that are rewarding. We all have the odd strange thought, but everything they think gets rewarded. And that's kind of my feeling about how schizophrenia develops, but who knows. Also in the nigrostriatal system, um, this is... That means black stripes because when you stain it, stain it? When you stain it with silver nitrate, uh, you end up with, you see these layers, these black, these black stripes. Um, and what happens here, what this leads to is symptoms that are similar to Parkinson's disease. And in fact, Parkinson's disease is not having enough dopamine in the nigrostriatal system. So one of the problems that happened early on Um, when people were giving these drugs and all these psychiatric wards were closing, was that 
people went from having schizophrenia to having what looked like Parkinson's disease. Part of the dyskinesia. Okay, so they end up being shaky, uh, being unable to move a little bit, things like that. Then the nice thing is the atypical antipsychotics have a little less effect in this area. So their side effects, not only do they seem to work on negative symptoms a bit better, they also seem to, they have less of these, uh, these Parkinson's-like side effects. Right? Um, the atypicals, for some reason, a reason that isn't really quite known, uh, don't seem to have as much of an effect here. So you don't get the Parkinson's-like symptoms as much. Drugs that block cholinergic receptors, in other words, acetylcholine receptors, stop the Parkinson's-like symptoms. And so atypicals also block cholinergic, the cholinergic symptom, uh, sorry, system uh, in the nigrostranial system. So it seems pretty, it, it's, that's pretty good evidence that that's what's going on here. See, the ultimate, it seems to me the ultimate antipsychotic drug would be something you could engineer that would just block D2 receptors outside of nigrostriatal. Um, I would not be surprised if every big drug company in the world was working on that right now as we spoke. Because that would be a panacea. That would, you know. All right, questions so far? a short one today. It's very easy to understand this stuff. Side effects. Um, Parkinson's-like symptoms are the, probably the nastiest side effect. So as I said before, you take the right drug in the right dose. Now that's me talking there. I've never taken these drugs, so I don't know if it's actually the nastiest side effect. But I would imagine that in this case, some people might think the cure was worse than the disease, right? People have problems with thermal regulation, so they um, get cold, they get hot. So hot flashes, cold flashes. <coughs> uh, can lead to seizures. You have to monitor pretty carefully when you're on these drugs, especially at the beginning. Right? When you go on the drugs at the very beginning, you really have to uh, be monitored. And this often happens with, with any medication, right? Um, yeah, that's one. <coughs> so suddenly it's become an episode of House. <coughs> Is it lupus? Never lupus. Never lupus. It's never MS. Every episode of House. There was one episode of that called It's, it's Never Lupus, was it? Then one day it was lupus. It was really surprising. Anyway. Can you believe that show's going off? It's sad, eh? I, I think it's sad. My dad, I think I told some of you guys this, my dad once said to me, he's the guy who turned me on to the show, and he said, you know, you should um, watch House. He's just like you'd be if you were an MD. I said, really? So I watched the show, and I talked to him the next day, and I said, Dad, he's an asshole. And he said, have you ever talked to yourself when you know more than the other person? I said, point taken, Dad, thanks. So, so that's scary, and that's what the atypical is. Like, Uh-oh, there's your downside. Uh, this is exceedingly rare, but it does happen. Okay, so it does happen. In fact, clozapine had been proved. People it was like, "Oh wow, look at this great drug!" And then people, people's livers were shutting down, and that'll kill you dead. Your liver shutting down, like that's not like 
it, it turns out, uh, in fact, that this actually probably only happens in Middle Eastern and Mediterranean people of that descent. You're thinking, what? Well, in fact, we have there, there. Humans are the least genetically diverse mammal. First thing you should know. But there are small differences between different groups, different populations. Um, so at first it looked like it was just Jewish people, right? Uh, Middle Eastern Jews, right? And then they said, well, they found some, it happens in Arabic people. It's like, oh, it's just sort of Semitic people, Middle Eastern people. And then it looked like it was basically maybe generally people from the Mediterranean region. So basically, if you are given these drugs, if you're, say, I don't know, Italian or Portuguese or Spanish or Moroccan or Israeli or Lebanese, I could name countries in the Middle East. See what I did there? I can name countries all around the Mediterranean. Many skills. Corsican. Huh. It's a part of France, that one. Um, you'll be monitored really closely for a few weeks as you're taking these drugs. Is that the liver failure you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, no, schizophrenia. It only shows up in people from the Mediterranean. Uh, what do you think it does to any animal? Well, it just slows them down. It puts them to sleep. So you take any animal, you give them, you give them antipsychotic drugs, they just stop behaving. There are dissociative effects. Uh, this shouldn't surprise you. Um, how are you going to learn anything on this drug when you don't have a reward system working properly? It's going to be hard. Most a lot of the learning is is about reward, right? Stimulus response, that kind of thing. So there are associated effects here. And the other, of course, that also presents a problem uh, therapeutically with. When people learn something on a dose of the drug, in other words, let's say they learn things like, I have to get up in the morning and take my pill. And sometimes these pills are every couple of days even, some, some of the newer drugs, because they work that slowly. But let's say you miss a day. This happens. We've all been given prescriptions and we miss a day. Happens to all of us. Or miss a, a dose. If this is going to happen... Um, and you, but you learn to take the drugs on the drug, then you go off the drug, you're going to have trouble remembering it, the associative effect on memory, and then maybe you won't take the drug anymore. One of the things that's really needed with people that have schizophrenia, if at all possible, is family support. Um, and the sad thing is here, of course, most people with schizophrenia, are the majority are of lower socioeconomic status. A lot of them are homeless people or formerly homeless people. Um, they may not have that kind of support. Right? And then when they go off the drug, they stay off. The, a lot of times people stay off the drug. There's a support group in Ontario called the Ontario Friends of Schizophrenics, and they've been pushing for years. Uh, see, because you don't have to take drugs, eh? Like when you're given drugs, like because you're a free human being, this whole idea, no, you don't take your drugs. They've been pushing for years to say the state should be able to force people with schizophrenia to take drugs. Because they aren't making a more a proper decision because they can't they're not really having informed consent when they're schizophrenic because they can't be informed because they think they have a thought disorder. And there's people that typically, and I've heard people from the uh, friends of schizophrenic say this. Typically, it's it's people that are well-meaning that have never met a schizophrenic or had one in their family that say, no, they have the their rights to not do this uh, until you have a schizophrenic family member. That's like, yeah, we should be able to just force it down his throat if we have to. 
because it makes people's lives bearable. Right? This isn't as depressing as the inhalants lecture, but it's close. Uh, your sex drive gets reduced. This shouldn't surprise you. Let's just think about this. Sex isn't any fun anymore. Because nothing's fun. Right? If nothing's fun, you don't do it anymore. So not only does it have tranquilizing effects, uh, you've also got the problem here of uh, that. So you, you have the tranquilizing effect, but you also have the idea that there's just no, why would you want to be up anyway? Nothing's any fun, <coughs> right? Uh, there's really no withdrawal to speak of. Unless you want to consider going, becoming schizophrenic again, you know, giving your symptoms a withdrawal symptom. It really isn't. And finally, these have absolutely no street value. Uh, when we talk about antidepressants, they even have street value. Right? People take Prozac for fun sometimes. Like, oh, I got an important meeting, I'll take a couple of antidepressants. The sort of personality cosmetic of the end. Uh, these have none. These have none. If you know, got the same street value as Pepto Bismol, <laughs> and you can see why. I mean, they block the damned reward system from working. I think the important thing to take away from this is the next time that someone tells you that, that, that schizophrenia is some sort of problem with society not accepting somebody, you can show them that graph of D2 binding efficiency and L, uh, ED50 of a drug. That should tell you something right there. Any questions about this stuff? Like I said, I, this is a quick one because these drugs are easy to understand. Uh, yeah, please. Um, two things. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it is lupus. There was two episodes. Yes, I think one or two. There's actually an episode called "It's Never Lupus," and then there's another episode called uh, "I think it, it is Lupus." So I think it's, yeah. okay. uh, the second thing was I actually went into hospital once with a migraine. Yeah. And they gave me like one of the things they gave me was an antipsychotic. Yeah. And it was horrible. Like it's around twenty percent And I was lying there, and my body was coming off of the bed. Like my body was twitching and vibrating. Yeah. Like. <laughs> well, they probably gave you, for you, the wrong drug, and in the wrong, perhaps the wrong dose, because what you're doing there is uh, the shaking is a, is a Parkinson's-like symptom. Right? They were giving you that probably, and it's just a guess, probably for the major tranquilizer effect. It's like, well, we'll put her to sleep, and she'll wake up later, and her headache will be gone. And I mean, I know five friends, a buddy of mine, Ken, has portable. Migraines, and I, I think he, he sometimes prefers that I just shot him in the head when he had a migraine, you know, because at least he'd be out of his misery. So I think that's why we were thinking. And I do know a person who had hiccups for four days, went to the hospital and said, This is just, you know, got to go away. And they, they gave him, uh, I think they gave him Alperol. Um, and it did two things it knocked him out for a couple of days, basically, made him really loopy. And, and the other thing is, that apparently, there's a, there's a uh, the pathway for the Hiccup reflex is dopaminergic. So it's actually it's, it's fascinating. But yeah, I mean, they are unpleasant drugs to take. Uh, they are given, uh, I've heard of it being given to 
uh, autistic people, and I think it's being used there just as a tranquilizer. I think that's pretty much unconscionable. <coughs> Other questions or thoughts? What happens if I... Oh, go ahead, Julie, then Alex. What happens if uh, people on these medications who drink? Is there like a... Can you sort of counter some of the side effects, or is it like... You're probably not going to get a lot of... Uh, the thing is, you'd need more alcohol to get an effect because it's shutting your reward system down, in essence. Uh, so that would be one potential problem. They might drink if they drink, they drink too much. I doubt it's really good to take these with alcohol, but I honestly don't know. It's a good question. Um, but taking any, like, or even at the <coughs> like, is there anything you can take that would sort of counter some of the effects? Counter the effects of? Like, not feeling anything. Like, generally taking some of the stuff makes you feel The problem here is that you've already, you're, you're, you have to take so much because your reward system is being basically shut down. You have to take so much that it actually could get dangerous. So much to get it to feel good. Right. And of course, part of the whole thing is that, I, like I said, I'm pretty sure that the big problem with schizophrenia is your reward system's always going, yeah, 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 this is true, and that's true, and everything makes you feel good, every thought you have. So if you actually kicked it sort of back into gear, I think you'd probably just be countering the effect of the drug and all that stuff. That's just a guess, but I think it's probably true. Yeah, but I have family that was on it like just as like a last resort because she had severe hair damage. Okay. So, like, more like the knockout thing that's what we're saying. And then yeah. whenever she was on them, you didn't let you say she was less friendly whenever she was on them. So. Yeah, and I mean, people get, it's, you can understand it completely why someone would be like that because, I mean, they're, everything's dulled. The world has been dulled for you. So while these things actually control schizophrenia, which is a good thing, Controlling schizophrenia is a good thing. Uh, people are able to, with the right dose and the right drug, hold down jobs and contribute to society. On the other hand, their lives are a lot of fun. So you can really see why. And I've heard, I've known other people that have had relatives that actually have schizophrenia, and they've said, you know, they make a deal with their relatives, basically. I'm going to not take the meds today, but. Because I want to really enjoy, you know, the meal we're all going to have together. If I start to get weird, make me take one. You know, that kind of thing. And that's a horrible way to have to live your life. But that's the best we can do right now. If we could just target the D2 receptors just at the right level, and it's going to be different for every person, then maybe I guess eventually we'll get there and, and, and we'll be able to control this. I think probably a gene therapy is going to come before we get there. But I think everything's going to be eventually gene therapy and nanotechnology anyway, and the robots will rule us all. So. Can I have a question about them in regards to sleep? Like, I've heard specifically with Seroquel that it'll obviously, like, help not sleep. You don't want to. When they stop taking it, um, the only really withdrawal that they feel is the fact that they can't sleep for the next few days. Like, they just have this perpetual insomnia. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, that makes sense. That wouldn't surprise me. I mean, um, I don't think it, ha it affects REM. Uh, so I don't think it's a question of REM rebound, but I think if you've been taking it probably very for a very long time, it wouldn't be surprising if you have you have sort of general a little bit of antsiness maybe, and also trouble sleeping. Yeah. Do you hear there being no general like dreams that one remembers? Yeah. Occasions like they're just like dreamless sleep most of the time. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think that, <laughs> but I haven't read anything saying there's a big yeah. REM problem. Um, like, say, alcohol or barbiturates. I mean, those things just 
they can remedy. I think the biggest problem, and then you're drowsy the next day. I think people are drowsy the next day here because these things are just going to make you drowsy. You know, you're going to be slow. And even if you weren't, weren't drowsy, you're going to be slow because nothing feels good anyway. Yeah. yeah, sort of. You know, I mean, the sad thing here is that, I mean, I, I'm giving you all worst case scenarios. There are people that take these drugs that consider them life lifesavers, uh, and, and it allows them to to live a pretty normal life. Right? You can live a pretty reasonable life, and people can have normal, regular old jobs and do good things for the world and pay taxes and all that good stuff. But there's a lot of people that have a whole lot of other problems as well because, again, we're, ch- we're talking about lower socioeconomic status people as a rule. And if we're talking about lower socioeconomic status people, just being lower socioeconomic status is enough trouble. And then you throw in that you're taking a drug that slows you down and makes nothing fun. You know, you're behind the eight ball to begin with. I, I don't know what the heck ever happened to that guy. Uh, what do I call him? Sergey. Um, like I said, all I know is he now and then writes letters. We should not publish our paper. No. No, we shouldn't. Anything else? All right. Anybody feel cheated into their tuition? All right. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. What? Uh, antidepressants, right? Another easy set of drugs to understand. Thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.